Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole to find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest this week is Alex Thorne. Alex was an early Bitcoin evangelist and former director of blockchain research and crypto venture capital at Fidelity. Today, he is the head of research at Galaxy Digital, where he consistently publishes some of the most insightful work in the space. Alex starts by telling us how he went from working at a children's summer camp to becoming the head blockchain researcher at Fidelity. We then talk about the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF, why the time was right, the probability of its approval, and its impact on the asset class. Finally, we dive into the XRP case and its many implications. Please enjoy this conversation with Alex Thorne. Alex, I'm excited to have you today. Another part of the Fidelity into Crypto crew. We're going to jump through your career, where you are. You've been in crypto for a lot longer than I have. But I thought a funnier place to start would be you have your own podcast, you have your own show, and you start rapping at the beginning of all of them. It's such an interesting thing. And I'll say that being a production of this stuff, everyone's trying to keep people hooked for the first couple of minutes. And yours definitely does. Where did this all come from? Yeah, thanks, Eric. Good to be here, man. So we have a podcast, Galaxy Brains, right? I'm head of research at Galaxy Digital, and it's basically the research podcast, essentially my podcast. I've been rapping since I was like 14. I'm in my mid-30s, so it's 20 years of rapping. And I also spent a lot of time making my own music. So essentially, primarily making hip-hop instrumentals. So I play the piano, I play the drums. So I do it all electronically with MIDI. So from like 2010 to 2018 in particular, I made like hundreds of beats. I was at Fidelity at the time. It was purely at home just a hobby. But I've been rapping for a long time, too. So then you give me a microphone and put some headphones on. Eventually, we're like, oh, well, we need some theme music. And so it's like, all right, well, I've got like a library of hundreds of beats we can use royalty free that I own. And then it's like, well, I'm listening to my beats with a microphone on my face. And it's like, we might as well rap. I mean, I think the first one we did was the week that FTX blew up. Actually, no, I think it was the week after. So we had Nick Carter on to talk about proof of reserves, the idea that you can cryptographically prove whether your financial services provider actually holds the assets they say they do if they're public blockchain assets. And I was like, I'm going to rap. I can't remember all four, but it was like, I'm done with FTX. Yo, I'm sick of these jerks. 
I went on Bloomberg and Shanali Bassick during like the lead in the count into the thing when there's like 10 seconds before I go live. She's like, yo, Alex, you got to do that rap real quick for us, which is great because it loosened me up. And I was like, we were listening to it. And we're like, you know, why not? No one does it. I can do it. It's basically like if you can, why not? And I don't think we'll do it forever. But we're building up quite a library. I think we've done like probably 24 out of 27 weeks of this year's episodes. We've wrapped at the beginning. And I usually try to name the guest's name right in there. The Selkis one was awesome. We don't just play the hand we're dealt with. I speak against the power. Like my name was Ryan Selkis, something like that. I rhymed Dan Machashevsky, one of the principals at CMS Holdings. I don't remember what I rhymed it with, but I try to eke something out. That's not an easy one. Let's go backwards a little bit. How do you go from teenage rapper to working at Fidelity. I met a lot of math majors. I met English philosophy. There weren't a lot of rappers I met at Fidelity. So I studied political science in college, but I had the um, ignominious distinction of graduating right in 2009, which was like the height of the great financial crisis. And so there weren't a lot of jobs. And I was actually working at my childhood summer camp. I don't think I've ever actually told the story publicly how I first got my first job at Fidelity. But at the end of the summer, there's a family camp turns from like boys camp, camp camp that everyone's used to summer camp into like basically a resort where like all families can rent everything out. And you go from monitoring children and like running activities and stuff and like being a funny camp counselor to just like sitting on the beach for like six hours waiting for anyone to show up that wants to do something in the water. And it was coming to the end. It was like late August or something, 2009. And I was like, I used to do this joke. It was question of the day during breakfast for all the fans, like parents with their kids and stuff. They just walk around and have fun with all the activities. And I'd say, question of the day, something funny. Put the best answer in the hat. At lunch, I'll read out all the answers. And like the best one, like some little kid's answer, we'll get like a candy bar or something. Two days before the job ended. And I didn't have a job yet. And I said, question of the day, it's a great financial crisis. You know, it's bad out there. My job ends in two days. Give me a job to like 250 people. And I was like, all right, what job should I do? Write a funny answer in the hat and I'll read it. An SVP and deputy general counsel at Fidelity was there with her family. And she was like, you're smart. What do you do? Like, what's your story or whatever? And then she was like, send me your resume. And a month later, hired me as like an entry level analyst in Fidelity's legal department, which was the beginning of a long 12 year career at Fidelity. So sometimes you just got to shoot your shot. I mean, I've heard of golf caddies. I've heard of waiters. I've not heard of camp counselor. So you start deputy. I think the reason why this is kind of an interesting background is while we both worked at the same company, we never met until we left. And even though we had very similar interests, I think there's a strong reason there. But you were also there very early in the formation of this interest in blockchain and crypto. So walk us through the timeline of how that happened. I tell people that I started as sort of a paralegal, but that's actually a job that requires training. That's actually a really difficult job. So I was really just an analyst in the legal group gathering evidence. So I worked in the litigation group. So gathering evidence from internal sources your account documents. If you were customer Fidelity and you sue Fidelity or have an arbitration with Fidelity for some reason, gather all your statements and all that type of stuff. Employees who gather your employee information, regulatory stuff. And eventually it was discovered in that I have a technology background and I was really good at messing around with computers. I used to be essentially like a hobbyist hacker. And I mean that in the sense of hacking things together on computers, learning about computers by breaking them, essentially. So I moved over into our litigation investigations group and eventually was the most senior forensic investigator in the litigation group at Fidelity. And about 2015, I was like, what do I do? Should I go to law school? Like, I mean, I majored in poli-sci. My mom's a lawyer. Like, I work for lawyers. Clearly an option, a path to go down. Didn't really want to do the business of law. And that was right about the time when Abby Johnson, the CEO and chairman of Fidelity, directed some people to start looking into Bitcoin. And it really did come from Abby. 
supposedly the story goes that she bought Bitcoin in 2014 or 2015 from a kiosk in South Station, I believe from a company, a Boston-based company called Liberty X that later went to become a pretty big Bitcoin ATM machine company. I don't know if that's true. So like, don't hold me to that. But I've heard that story. She directed some people to go look into it. And they really were just starting to ask around and they asked around the entire company, who knows about it? Let's, we'd love to talk to you. And by virtue of him working on the technical side of litigations and regulatory inquiries, I had spoken to people all around Fidelity's many hundreds of business units over the years. And I think I must have talked to a lot of people's ears off about Bitcoin. They kept hearing like, oh, you got to talk to Alex at Fidelity Legal. He's like obsessed with Bitcoin. So I started working with them and then took like a year or so to make it happen. But eventually they hired me as director of blockchain research at Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, FCAT, it's called, which is the innovation, the technology innovation group, sort of the central technology innovation group. I did that for a couple of years. I think it started maybe at the end of 2017 in that job. The last three or so years before I came to Galaxy, I co-managed Avon Ventures. I think technically the term is the crypto-focused VC firm affiliated with FMR LLC, the parent company of Fidelity Investment. So it actually operates out of an investment group called Devonshire Investors. So it's not on balance sheet capital, but it's affiliated capital with Fidelity. And we did early stage crypto VC for several years. So yeah, it was there for a lot of the stand-up of Fidelity digital assets and participated and contributed to those efforts and then did crypto VC there. It was like me and this other guy, Sachin Patodia, he's still there. It's been a little bit of a wild ride, but I tell people sometimes if you are interested in something that's dangerous, in particular, potentially dangerous to your business, and this really applies more if you're like a big company like Fidelity was, if you're in the belly of the beast of a giant corporate looking at how to like do something much more interesting, it's very hard to move around in those types of companies, not because they're not good at finding talent and stuff. There's a lot of bureaucracy and gum and stuff. And I just started speaking up about Bitcoin everywhere, internal social media site. I'm like writing whole blogs about it. I'm talking to people and talking about how it could be the future of money. And gosh, our business is money related. Shouldn't we all be looking into this? And I just evangelized it until they were like, well, come evangelize it for us. One thing, because we come from the same background and we're to the same company, in some parts of the company, it was evangelized. It was definitely a personal interest from the top of this asset class. It didn't happen across the financial services industry. You didn't see the same behavior across the board. I do think that Fidelity was pretty early in that. But it also, at some points, felt very isolated. There were certain groups that worked on it and other groups that didn't. Did you come across Nick Carter or Matt Walsh in this phase? Yeah. When they first started working on it, I wasn't working on it full time, but I had been in touch with them and had sort of participated in some proofs of concept as like a guinea pig, basically. Talked to them about it, but wasn't actually working on it. So there was this whole era of it, maybe two and a half years before I actually worked on it full time there of other people working on it, including Matt Walsh. Matt basically in 2017, they said we should really like look at investing in the space, thinking of it like an asset class. And that's when Matt hired Nick Carter as the first analyst hired specifically to cover crypto assets. I knew them, yeah, at Fidelity pretty well. And then it was their effort that when they left to start Castle Island Ventures, Avon Ventures, which I co-managed, was born out of basically because they had proven the concept that we should be doing some kind of investing. Now, we only did at Avon equity investments in early stage startups in the space. But yeah, I knew those guys and a lot of others. I mean, we joke, it's like there's like a Fidelity mafia out there at this point. It's pretty cool. So you decided to leave the Galaxy at 2021, which is kind of a pivotal time in this entire boom-bust cycle that this asset class goes through. What was that transition and decision like? Well, I mean, I had been at Fidelity for 12 years in various roles, which is a long time. It was my only professional career employer 
And so I was just interested in doing something a little bit differently. I came from this institutional background. I was raised in it and I believe in it. I believe that there is a big role for institutional capital and processes in Bitcoin and in cryptocurrencies. I've been telling people with the BlackRock that are hesitant or skeptical even of BlackRock's intent or like the future they may bring with an ETF if they're successful. This is what hyper-Bitcoinization looks like, that you can't get to that mountaintop without the involvement of institutions and institutional capital. So anyway, I was thinking about where I could go and I knew some people here, some friends of mine, and they really liked it. And it was similar, right? It's a public company, institutional focus, strong compliance and risk management background here, not really a startup in that sense, although, of course, a young company. And Galaxy checked all those boxes for me as a really connected. I wanted to be more at the center of the market than Fidelity, which has been early and powerful. But by virtue of the type of company it is, they're not like deep in crypto markets. And I wanted to be closer to the center of that energy. There aren't many companies that are playing the institutional game in crypto like Galaxy. Yeah, I think Galaxy is rare in that way. And I've been fortunate enough to get to know Mike, the founder, who's had, for many people listening, Mike Novogratz had a famous trading career. He's been a founder multiple times. He's been really successful. And so he knows TradeFi and built this business. And it kind of gets me to my next question, which you were alluding to with BlackRock, that I think there's this pure crypto separate world and TradeFi is over here and DeFi is over here and the worlds are just going to constantly be oil and water. I think for a lot of people who have a TradeFi background, they just see so much potential to integrate the two worlds, which obviously Galaxy is at the center of and uniquely positioned. What's your take on people's reaction to this split versus sometimes the negativity that some more purists might feel about them being together? It definitely exists. I would say the gap is getting smaller um, because institutions, what are they? They're people. Collectively, an institution may have different goals or rules or standards or processes, but the people that operate these institutions are people. And I know this acutely from working at Fidelity, although, of course, one of the most conservative, famous, technology-driven, mostly mutual fund companies, there's a lot of really innovative work being done there. It's innovative people doing it. And so it doesn't surprise me that over time, as the promise of decentralized public blockchains has become more evident, And also it's matured that you've gotten interest from a lot more people. And that includes people at places like BlackRock or big financial places, includes people at the grocery store, includes farmers, it includes doctors, and it includes financial services professionals. And several years ago, it would be maybe like a middle manager or like subject matter expert at the company agitating that the company like start a working group or start looking at it. Fidelity was unique in that way that it wasn't that middle person advocating up, it was the chairman and CEO advocating down, which is why they were able to be so early. But look at all those other places, there was still like a Bitcoiner or a crypto enthusiast or an Ethereum. But eventually either they became more senior or more senior people got interested and like enough time passes alone, leaving aside the catalyst that actually propelled it. And there were some that eventually people are interested all across the spectrum of sectors and of career stages of career. That clearly happened by the time 2021 happened after the massive balance sheet expansion at the Fed following the COVID stuff and then Paul Tudor Jones's letter and then the halving in Bitcoin. And and when we started to break that fire all time high, I think there were a lot of people who were curious that were like, okay, I no longer have to tell people I'm interested in something that's down 90 percent from its all time high. 
That clearly happened, and we've seen it here. I've seen a lone investor at an allocator on the investment committee interested in asking questions turn into an entire working group to figure out how to get exposure Like over the last couple of years. So it's inevitable. I think it's also a testament to the actual promise. We weren't crazy like years ago when we said this could be a really big deal in the global economy, not just for people at home, hobbyists, techno anarchists and whatnot. For everyone, this could be a big deal. And I think it's clearly been proven right, or at least many other people agree with us now, including those that operate in these traditional worlds. In terms of the purists, though, worrying about the entrance of these big players, I think this is totally valid concern. I wrote a couple of weeks ago in our newsletter that if the memes that convey Bitcoin's fundamental values aren't refined, internalized, passed on, even in an oral tradition, then the actual fundamental protocol features that they describe may not persist. And that it is essential that you think about new entrants, if you have an ETF that's widely owned, are these owners going to have heard of who like Satoshi is? Are they going to understand the properties of Bitcoin that make it so valuable that, you know, with its various decentralization properties, we've got to make sure that they do because over the long term, you could easily see the vast majority of cryptocurrency owners be totally ignorant to what they own. And that, in a worst case scenario, could lead to the dilution of the properties that make them valuable in the first place. That's what people fear. I don't worry about that. I actively work to mitigate and prevent that through education. And I know some of the teams at these big companies, these traditional financial companies that are, for example, going for ETFs, and they're Bitcoiners and Ethereans. They get it. It's about empowering them, helping people like them get the message out to their clients and users and whomever and and really explain what the thing is, because we're still arguing in Bitcoin about its own fundamental features. People are still debating like the security budget. It's a legitimate debate. You're telling me humans can create something so profound and complex they don't even know how it works. If we're having trouble describing it, imagine how confused the masses might be if they get access to it through something like this. It's an education game always to keep that gap narrowing between the purists and the masses. But that's going to be a wall of worry that Bitcoin and crypto have to climb forever. As you were saying it, there's something about it that resonates that feels idealistic. But then I think about the pragmatic part of how Wall Street works and none of that matters, that they buy equities. They don't know the CEO, the board. They don't know the cash flow, the balance sheet. And I don't necessarily think that's a flaw. I guess it's interesting that you feel so passionate about the story. I, all of that, as someone who's read it and understands it, I have an admiration and appreciation for. But it's not like someone who buys Intel. Maybe if they work at Intel, they know Andy Grove, but they don't know the story. Or if you work at Fidelity, you know that there was Edward and then Abby, and it matters to you. But how important is that for the future of the asset class? I think the point you're getting to is less about maybe the lore, which is important for the hardcore people, but that you have these decisions that are going to be made at a much more global scale. And how could that hurt Bitcoin? If you just think about forking Bitcoin, proposing upgrades, I think it's a common misconception that miners control Bitcoin. There's really like a triumvirate of governance there between developers and nodes and miners. And economic nodes have proven they have their own power, their own veto power. But the issue is we're about to bring on a lot more economic nodes. And so if these users, I don't expect every person at all to know, certainly not to operate a node or even know how to, although I applaud Bitcoin educators trying to teach people, and they should. I think realistically, what's going to happen is a lot of these holders are going to outsource any governance related decisions to an asset manager. So now the issue is the game theory that, say, helped the Bitcoin nodes essentially veto the block size increase in 2017 against the miners 
is that game theory going to hold when we have a whole new class of, in some cases, politically connected capital? I think it will, but I think we should be watching to make sure it can. One of the things some people are worried about is with BlackRock's history of promoting ESG investing, they're concerned that what if BlackRock were to say we should switch Bitcoin's consensus mechanism away from proof of work? I don't know what would happen. I don't think they would say it. I think a firm like Fidelity would oppose it. It'd be really interesting. Making people understand that a Bitcoin proof of stake ledger doesn't really look a lot different than any other proof of stake ledger that you could just set the parameters on to make it 21 million total supply. I agree, you you shouldn't have to know, but the system needs to be able to absorb that giant influx while still maintaining its properties. And to be clear, I don't even actually know how to make sure it does, but it's starting to raise the alarm that we need to make sure it does. It's something we have to be thinking about. Yeah, no, I'm glad you're raising it. Imagine that the ETF gets approved and we'll come back to what the probability of that is, but it does. Because this happens in traditional finance where BlackRock owns part of the company and Vanguard and Fidelity, and they have huge blocks. And the active managers might vote at the PM level. The passive managers might outsource to a third party that's making a decision. There's conflict, but it's just the person who has the largest stakes and the largest votes usually gets to decide what happens next. Assuming it gets approved and it's massive, and this thing is $50 billion, I'm just making numbers, how would or how could BlackRock set it up in a way to impact either positively or negatively the asset class? Well, in terms of the fear that I'm raising, what they could do is if there was a proposed fork, or fork, let's say, to change the consensus mechanism to proof of stake from proof of work, they could just say that their nodes are going to start following the proof of stake chain. And now if that's not the majority of economic power, then it will create a fork But if the ETF grows to be such a large portion of the total value of Bitcoin, you could easily imagine the majority deciding to go with that because most people's money in that scenario will be in BlackRock's hands or in that camp. I mean, theoretically, everyone's going to want to go with the fork that wins because it's likely to be the most valuable and they'll just have a lot more feet to shuffle across the floor and to make their voice heard. Bitcoin, I will say, is not like other networks where there is direct governance. Owning Bitcoins doesn't actually let you like vote on anything. Even proof of stake, you can typically vote on block production. So they can't do that. It's not as acute of a risk as it would be for some other types of public blockchains or even just dApps that have governance powers associated with the tokens, but they could absolutely influence where the network goes. I think more optimistically and broadly, the creation of a market access vehicle that's so widely available and efficient and inexpensive, this is what Larry Fink said, he's totally right, that their entire company, BlackRock, has been designed around the idea of democratizing investing. And he talked specifically in that first interview on Fox Business about how the bid-ass spreads in Bitcoin are kind of wide. People are paying huge. Yeah, huge spreads, especially right now. We're much less liquid than we were, you know, a year and a half ago. They think they can tighten that significantly while charging very low fees in a vehicle that basically any brokerage account on earth can hold. So, I mean, I think that's an incredibly powerful concept, letting people express their view in Bitcoin much more easily that would dramatically increase the liquidity of the asset. And of course, if there are other ETFs than the asset class, perhaps, which would make it much less volatile, much easier for size to enter. And that start to tick down those list of reasons that institutions have said they don't buy Bitcoin, right? It's like volatility, questions about custody in the past, illicit uses. All of those get chipped away or even solved by something that's big, a big market access vehicle. So it could be very positive for Bitcoin. I think that's why people are excited about it. It will eventually happen. I mean, it's just inevitable that it will eventually happen. 
BlackRock's history. And Larry Fink's, I believe he was a mortgage-backed trader. He was a bond market guy. And it was the same thing. This is why there's a lot of bond people that get attracted to crypto. They see these markets move from illiquid, hard-to-price assets that are odd and don't trade normally into more efficient systems. So I agree that ETF and everyone I think is so bullish. I haven't heard as much alarms raised. There haven't been too many, but in the Bitcoin community, I've heard some questions. And I just think partly because it was in their filing, they have a section on fork choice, which is really interesting. I don't know if you saw that, but it's like in the event of a hard fork, essentially BlackRock, the sponsor, which I guess is iShares, but BlackRock, basically at their sole determination, figure out which fork is the real Bitcoin they will honor. Some people were like, oh my God, that means they could say like, it's the other one (laughs) or whatever. So that raised, I think, started some of the conversation that I've heard. But in reality, like that's boilerplate language for like every single custodian. And it's partly because in 2017 with the Bitcoin cash fork, all the exchanges, which functioned as custodians for a lot of people, they all handled it differently. And basically they all got crap for how they handled it. Coinbase didn't do anything. And then remember, they listed BCH like months later. Some exchanges instantly dumped the BCH and gave you the Bitcoin equivalent of it. Others said they were going to keep it and then give it to you. Others gave it to you right away. But people screwed up and sent like Bitcoin to the BCH address and vice versa. Like it was a whole disaster. What came out of that was that custodians basically all just said, look, our policy is we're going to like wait and see what happens and then like we'll figure it out. But it's good because they have smart people there at these places for the most part now who really get Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Let's let the process play out. I find it very hard to believe, though, that BlackRock or any other asset manager would ever jeopardize the value of the assets that they hold by like picking some contentious hard fork to get behind. They're just going to chill and wait. So that's why I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think that's where it emanates from is that fear. But I think it's pretty misplaced. I want to get into the mechanics of it. They're selecting Coinbase to be the custodian for the BlackRock ETF. Is that correct? Yeah. And so in that case, is there a world where the nodes aren't run that just Coinbase just holds a block of assets in their name and just does the traditional record keeping so that they're able to essentially keep themselves out of any of the governance decisions explicitly? It's possible. They say that the sponsor will decide, no matter who holds the keys, if it's Coinbase or anyone else. When a contentious hard fork happens, you now have one set of keys that can operate on both networks. If they wanted to, say, follow a fork, forget whether they want to follow it and call it the real Bitcoin. In the event of a fork, there will be two assets. And we're kind of beyond the like never-ending fork thing, but this used to happen all the time. There was like 10 or 20 Bitcoin forks in like 16, 17, and 18. Some custodial agreements were such that the users were demanding that in the event of a fork, you would get us access to that fork because that could essentially be considered like a dividend. We would just dump the stupid fork, even if it was worth one one thousandth of Bitcoin, it was still worth something. The issue is Coinbase, as the custodian, they'll have keys that can operate on two networks in the event of a fork. You could imagine if it was a minority fork, which they all have been in the past, you could see BlackRock or any other Coinbase customer being like, whoa, 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 we want you to dump the BTC and keep the BNEW, the new Bitcoin. The issue is that with such a giant pile of coins, that decision by a big asset manager could be consequential. I see. Getting into the filing, I thought this was the most surprising thing of a very surprising year, maybe besides PJ Live Golf. That surprised me the most. Everyone has filed these applications with the SEC going back to, I think the Winklevoss twins might have been the absolute first. And then everyone followed them and Fidelity did it and Van Eck did it and BlackRock didn't do it. Then out of nowhere, BlackRock files this thing. And I think the part that was so surprising to me is, I don't know if this was just they hired the best clever lawyers because 
at a high level, it seems like they took GBTC, the Grayscale structure that was kind of flawed, but it could get approved such that you could launch a closed-end Delaware statutory trust, but you couldn't create Redeem. So there's no arbitrage. That's my high-level summary of GBTC. Every time someone applies to the SEC, the SEC's complaint is the market is manipulated. I need oversight over the exchanges, causing this catch-22. What the hell did BlackRock do to kind of thread this needle and be so close to what everyone thinks is a potential approval? Yeah, I don't know how close they are. I am willing to speculate about that. But I think the question is why now they didn't get in when almost everyone got in in 21. Basically, everybody but BlackRock and Vanguard. If you go down the list of the world's biggest asset managers, it's almost all of them. There's a Bloomberg analyst, Elliot Stein, litigation analyst at Bloomberg, who I think shortly before the BlackRock filing, which is like, what, mid-June at this point, like a month ago, had pegged a grayscale victory against the SEC in their litigation over the GBDC conversion at 70% likely at this point. So it's possible that they're reading tea leaves and thinking there's a victory that may happen in court that could make an ETF more likely, so we'd like to be first in line. On the other hand, they said in their filing that, that they had a surveillance sharing agreement with a crypto market that they'd be using, crypto spot market, whereas some prior filings said they had surveillance sharing agreements, but only on the futures markets. The SEC had even, I think two of the ones they rejected, did say that they had surveillance sharing agreements through a futures market. So they're basically going to monitor for market manipulation on like CME, Bitcoin futures. That hadn't been sufficient. They've been calling for a regulated market of sufficient size with surveillance sharing agreements, like you said, and prove that there can't be market manipulation. BlackRock was the first to say they have one with a spot. And then there was that little kerfuffle briefly, like two weeks ago, where the Wall Street Journal story came out and said that the SEC like told them all like it wasn't sufficient. So they all just like quickly refiled. And they basically all said that the bot market was coin-based. And BlackRock, I think a few others did as well, said that not only do we intend to enter into an agreement, we've already entered into that agreement with Coinbase. And like we can provide that agreement if you need to look at it. They did it smarter. The filing is slightly different. And obviously everyone has followed that since they did that right away. I think there's some sense maybe that there's a dam is starting to break in, in terms of the commission itself that they just can't simply deny this ETF forever. There's some reasons for that. Proponents for the ETF have known these issues for a long time, these arguments, but it's starting to be like a lot of people are looking at it and really realizing, for example, even though they had rejected some surveillance sharing agreement, some ETF applications that had surveillance sharing agreements, but with futures markets rather than spot, GLD, the Spider Bitcoin Trust launched with surveillance sharing on futures markets. Why? There is no central spot market for gold. There is not a regulated market with surveillance sharing agreements for oil. In fact, oil, which you can trade in a commodity ETF, is managed by a cartel. Gold is traded worldwide on the street in many countries, at pawn shops. There is no way to get your hands around a regulated market of sufficient size with surveillance agreements at the spot level. But of course, you can go to the futures markets and monitor those. And with analytic softwares, which are widely available in traditional markets, you can monitor that to identify whether or not there is clear manipulation occurring. So that was one reason. There was an inconsistency. Why is futures market surveillance sharing okay in some commodities, but not in Bitcoin? The other obvious one is that these things are all over the world already. There's ETFs in Canada and Brazil and Europe. We're not talking about like random non-advanced countries. These are major economies with mature financial services, industries, and markets. And the other thing too, I think now, I have no idea if this is any of this is what drove BlackRock to do it. But if I had to guess, there were all these problems with crypto market infrastructure companies in 2022. 
whether they were intentionally avoiding regulation or there simply wasn't sufficient regulation, they'd asked for it and not gotten it or there's lack of clarity or whatever. There were these spectacular blowups, whereas something like a regulated spot ETF that anyone can hold that has quick create redeem, very transparent, totally regulated, can hold in your brokerage account, efficient, inexpensive. That could perhaps have protected a lot of people from having to go out on the risk curve to get access to something that is clearly in demand. I don't know if all of these reasons, but that's one thing I think about. There's a lot of unknowns, as you know, in regulation in crypto. But on the Bitcoin ETF, it's the only one that the chair of the SEC has said explicitly is not a security. There's a whole bunch of reasons why it's like, dude, at least you got to let this thing through at some point. It starts to feel like that. Bet you it was people at BlackRock. Regular people like us who work at BlackRock that were like, this might be the time. And then they did their whole institutional thing and they decided there was a good compelling case for it. Yeah, I definitely think that as much conspiracy theories that there might be on crypto Twitter about why and what, it does seem like it was a very just well-executed decision from a team of people that are watching the tea leaves and saying, to your point, there's lots of products. You've laid out a great set of arguments. People are launching four times leverage short nonsense. You can buy options for a day. There's all this risk that's happening and the linchpin to try to get crypto exchanges to nationally register. This kind of like higher level battlefield, which we'll get into an XRP a little bit, but this higher desire and this linchpin has just been kind of chipped away at. And maybe this is the final chip. Today, middle of July, what are your odds that we got a BlackRock Bitcoin ETF? I would say definitely greater than 50%. So I'd say more likely than not, which is still hemming and hawing a bit. I'm not going to put a time frame on it. I would say within a year and a half. It's a pretty long time frame. I think it's pretty likely. I mean, again, for the reasons I stated, it just doesn't feel like the type of thing that is never going to happen. It seems very obvious. It's good for consumer protection. It's good for liquidity. Other major economies already have them. So it's good for capital formation in the U.S., and competitiveness. I think there's a lot of good reasons. I would say greater than 50%. I definitely do feel more confident now than I've ever felt about it. Partly too, because Bitcoin, again, in the regulatory eyes has been so differentiated by regulators. It's just like, well, if it's so different, <laughs> like, shouldn't it be considered totally differently in this instance? I think that it's a linchpin. Like I said, people have been kind of chipping away at it. I bet you my probability is 80%. And I know that they have a time frame where they have to do it. It's similar to Every time one of these filings came, people were kind of changing this or that, but nobody did anything that was so aggressively pointed at the thing that they've been talking about. This is the problem. And we're going to take the old structure that you already have approved, and we're going to solve the problem you're saying. So we're not going to go down the path of we're launching ETF, let us. We're going to take the structure, and then we're going to change it. They're using the Delaware statutory trust, but they're taking out this language, saying create, redeem, saying you have the surveillance thing. So we'll see. It'll be fun to watch. The institutions are here. They're not coming. They're here. I'm lucky enough to talk to lots of major asset management firms. There was always a 12-person committee somewhere. Everyone was looking at crypto. And that was the exploration team. Now you go and there's someone in charge of real-world assets. There's someone in charge of tokenization of loans. Now there's multiple groups inside large financial organizations. For better or for worse, finance is driven by money. And there's lots of very smart people that want to make a lot of money. And if you're in the finance industry, you're constantly hyper-attuned and aware to opportunities changing. There isn't some philosophical, I will do this, I won't do that. I always find it funny, whether it's Jamie Dimon or Larry Fink speaking so drastically, and everyone's like, oh my God, they said this, then they said that. I'm like, well, they run a financial services company. At the end of the day, if there's money to be made, they're going to move into that sector and they're going to just change their, their narrative, which you, you see them do. So 
I think the institutions have always been there. The biggest thing has been regulatory clarity. They can only go so far without risk to their core business. So if you have a core business generating billions of dollars of profitability, and this is an interesting prospect that could grow top line revenue and bottom line, but it's not going to do anything. If anything, the downside always outweighed the upside to the risk. And then BlackRock makes a move and gets the regulators or finds some pathway forward. They say, okay, this is the way to do it. They will all run 100 miles an hour in that direction. Yeah, I think you're right. The career risk and the regulatory risk. Once someone like BlackRock comes out and says this, it's the other thing people are thinking, again, I mentioned how BlackRock is pretty famous for their sort of attention to the ESG investing narrative. And then people are like, well, isn't the firm that was like well-known for ESG, but like, isn't Bitcoin like bad for the environment? I don't think we're going to really talk at length about because it it's a big, big topic, but I don't think that. And so it's a strong signal. They think the environment is positive for a Bitcoin ETF. That gives a lot of people cover to start talking about it that couldn't or didn't want to because of risk. We don't have to go down the whole Bitcoin ESG thing. I think BlackRock has its own issues with ESG. There's lawsuits about it. There's proxy wars. I think they just took the CEO of Aramco, the largest oil producing company on the planet. And now that they're on the board of BlackRock, like there's a lot of things that are going to make ESG hard. I think Bitcoin, it's a thing that comes up and it's definitely, I agree. I, I like that you flag things. I think it's one of the parts of your research I like the most. I agree with you a lot. Sometimes I don't, but I like how you flag provocative thoughts of have you thought about it this way. XRP. If Bitcoin ETF was big news, I think XRP, I don't know what your take was, but mine, obviously there's a lot of joy in that there was this result, but I want to dive into from a research standpoint, what happened, how I read it at my high level, non-legal side of it sounded like the notion was that the token itself is not a security. The transaction with which it's a part of is. And so that when you sold to institutional investors, you promised and made it feel and look and sound very much like a security transaction so that it was a security in that, but that when you use programmatic sales, meaning you just, I guess, launched it on an exchange and let retail buy it, that the retail buyer on a secondary market wasn't aware they were giving money to XRP, therefore it wasn't a security. So do I have that right? What am I missing? Explain it like I'm five. I think that's a pretty good overview. And it is a tricky ruling. If you're in a lawsuit, there's ways where you can win and have it not be good for you, or you can lose and have it not be bad for you. There's so much nuance involved. I do think that overall, the ruling is worse for the SEC than it is actually good for crypto in the scheme of things. What they said was that the institutional sales, this is sales to like venture investors, we're aware of in the crypto world. The issue was that offering itself in those instances were securities transactions, like you pointed out, even if in those transactions, the tokens that they sold in those institutional sales might not have been securities themselves, it was the offering was a security. And in that specific case, Ripple didn't offer those under a securities exemption like a Reg D. Most of the newer cryptocurrencies that launched like in 18, 19, 20, 21, that also did these types of institutional sales, they did so as an exempted securities offering. So they did register. Actually, they were exempt from registering, but they did it under the framework, whereas Ripple did not. So they weren't registered as security and they didn't use an exemption. So that's where they got nailed here by the judge on that one. So that's the institutional sales. And then you mentioned the programmatic sales. This is kind of tricky, but I do think it can kind of make sense. I've been thinking about this a lot over the last week. They had a programmatic schedule by which they sold these things, which was published, the schedule, right? It's kind of like selling like, I don't know, you make widgets and you sell them. <laughs> now, if you make a special deal to buy a bunch of widgets in private, that deal could be a, a security. 
which is the institutional sales. But if you just open a bunch of stores and sell a bunch of widgets to anyone who wants one with no additional documentation saying like, we're going to use this widget money to like make the widgets more valuable, right? Which didn't exist. The judge is kind of saying those aren't securities transactions. Just selling your wares, pre-sell to a private group with a bunch of promises and legal documents, then that could be a security, but not when you just sell the widgets. Just to back up, the programmatic sale specifically, the judge wrote, failed the third prong of Howie, which is the common enter expectation of profit based on the efforts of a third party. And they're saying, well, the buyers didn't even know necessarily who the party was that they were buying the widgets from, I think. So how could they have any expectation that anything would be done? It's still kind of tricky when I buy Apple stock. Is the money that I use to buy it going to help Apple directly? That was my first thought. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, but Apple is an equity. XRP could have been a security, but it was never an equity. To no party did it confer any governance rights or cash flow from Ripple Labs. It never did. It really is actually different than an equity because it's more like a widget. It's literally a token. And so the other one that I really like is these other distributions. So the judge said that these take compensation to an employee. You work at Ripple Labs, get a salary, maybe get a bonus. And maybe as part of the bonus, you're just gifted some XRP tokens that they had on their balance sheet. Well, you've made no investment of money to receive those tokens, so they can't be a security. That's the first prong of Howie, which is you have to make an investment of money for it to be a security. Well, they gave them to you for free. There is no investment of money. And I thought actually of all the things that have come out of this, although again, this is like evolving. There's so many opinions on this ruling because it's tricky that this might've been the most clear guidance that comes out of it for teams that if you do an airdrop, they give the token to people that didn't pay for it. It's going to be really hard for that to be a security because there's no investment of money on behalf of the recipient, which is really interesting. We could see like the airdrop become an even more prominent feature of token distribution methods going forward. I do think coursing through the language of the ruling is that concept that if you think about Howie and the orange groves, the orange isn't a security, but the interest in the grove, which generates cash flow, that's a security. And I feel like that is something that the industry has been advocating for a view that they've been pressing for a long time. There's a way where the offering versus the item that the underlying item contained in the offering, one can be a security and one cannot. And the judge, I think it did endorse that. It is a limited ruling. It's a summary judgment ruling in ongoing litigation in one district. You could easily see a case in a different district go completely the other way. It could be overturned on appeal, of course. It doesn't have, I don't think, the depth of precedential value for other cryptos that some, I think, initially thought. But it is undeniably a setback for the SEC. I think the clear takeaway is that those offerings, whether or not they're securities, those have to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. I don't think you can just throw a bunch of cryptos up on a wall and call them all crypto asset securities now. They're going to have to really duke it out on each individual instance. How does this, if at all, relate to how you've been thinking about like the Coinbase lawsuit? They basically did that. They said, here's 12. All we have to do is prove that one is a security. And then we can go to Coinbase and say that you didn't register as an exchange, you didn't register as a broker dealer, and you didn't register as a national clearinghouse, I believe. So what they're saying is, if you're trading securities, you have to do these things. Does this change your opinion of a case like that? I think it raises the bar a bit for the standard of proof that the SEC will have to actually do to claim that these are securities. They're going to really have to go deeper on a case-by-case basis for each one that they list in that suit. And you can imagine, like, you're right. Technically, they only need to have one to say, well, you sold securities. Well, there was one. And that's sort of been their strategy, a more wholesale approach to sort of getting their arms around the cryptocurrency industry by going after exchanges now instead of individual issuers. But you can imagine a situation where they, okay, so there is one. Let's say there is one. 
Coinbase or whichever exchange can just delist it. The second they delist it, it's essentially moot. Maybe they go back and pay. Well, okay, so then they have to find another one. It's like, okay, well, like delist that. It starts to become a much more case-by-case basis problem, which could be a lot more time-consuming, a lot more costly for the SEC to litigate. It really presses in my mind the idea that, gosh, we really need an actual holistic rulemaking process or legislation to really sort this out because already the SEC is rolling the dice in court cases all around the country, spending a ton of money on litigation. And even with good facts, you could always just lose a case. Courts are tricky. Who knows what's going to happen? If you want to get your arms around and promote capital formation and protect consumers and investors, fulfill that mission as a regulator, the much more obvious and even perhaps prudent way to do that would be to look at it holistically. Because again, if I'm an exchange and you're locked into this process with me and you only need one and you, let's say we decide to press you on the one, now it's like really actually prove it. They're kind of saying, look, there's these 15, like we're certain at least one of them is, we think they all are, but we're certain at least one is, well, what if I come out with $500 million of lawyers and say, prove every single one is, and you lose on all 14 of them if you're the regulator, but you win one, and then me, the exchange, I just delist it. Now I'm not a securities exchange anymore. Maybe I briefly was, I didn't think I was. You see what I'm saying? It becomes a very, very tricky legal process for the regulator in that spot. I've been having some of the same thoughts. I thought I went down that path of, Apple issues a primary sale through an IPO or a secondary offering. When retail buys it, they're still protected because it's an equity, it's security. So I kind of followed that logic. And then I started to get maybe more cynical and worried that what this might lead to is just an actually increase in scams and grifts on retail. That what you're saying is because institutions were presented with legal paperwork, that they're somehow protected from actors that could be selling securities. But as long as retail doesn't know who you are, isn't aware of it, you just launch a bunch of tokens. And so I started to worry about a scammer thinking like, well, my legal risk just went down. I could just start launching meme coins on an anonymous account and or launch them on an exchange. Not that an exchange would necessarily allow for programmatic sales like this. But do you think this actually increases the risk to bad actors for the general trading market? The argument is like, doesn't this type of ruling turn the regulations on their head? They protect the rich, depocketed institution and they don't protect the regular person who bought it on the exchange. That is a reasonable way to look at the ruling. I don't think it's the primary takeaway from the ruling, but I do think it is part of the reason why I know we and many think that there should be more comprehensive rules for how these things operate and how to do these types of offerings, how to list these things. It is one thing that I love about Bitcoin, right? It's a totally fair launch. We know you can go with a fair launch, which is where there is no pre-selling of anyone can only earn them in Bitcoin. Every Bitcoin ever in existence was mined. There are other coins that are like that. And you can imagine an airdrop also being a much less objectionable standard here because, okay, let's say you create a token, you keep 20% of it and you airdrop the other 80% to like, say like, I don't know, like every Ethereum user or something like that. Okay, it goes to zero. Everyone got it for free in the first place. You can't really like scam people in that way. But I think this is one of the reasons you're right to point it out we want retail to be protected. Some of these just patently aren't securities. So like the securities laws as they exist today are just not ripe to actually oversee them, which is why I think so many people in the industry are calling for something more comprehensive and tailored to the actual nature of this asset class. I mean, I've been very encouraged by some of the legislation that we've seen emanate in draft form or otherwise in Congress that would sort of provide rules. I mean, if you look at the McHenry bill, they're incredibly specific about disclosure. If an investor owns X percent, they have to like submit to all this disclosure. I think that's totally right. Others like Ryan Selkis and Masari, I mean, they were calling for this years ago. 
one of Asari's earlier incarnations was specifically as a disclosures database. Yeah, Edgar for uh, crypto. Edgar for crypto, yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody in this industry wants it to be ripe and rife with scams against retail. I don't think so at all. Yeah, I was going down that path because to me, it does seem just like there's a timing in the market where you get this momentum. Like you think, okay, whether it's a crisis and that leads to new rules or something like this where you get a ruling where you're like, oh man, this is, yes, the right ruling. And I do agree that it feels like a win for crypto and a loss for the SEC. And then the SEC has all these other options it can go do. If you're a member of Congress looking at this and someone explains it to you, like just even Matt Levine's piece, and he's well-versed in finance. The headline is it's a security and an odd security. It sounds confusing to everyone. Now, if you understand it deeply, you're like, oh, I can appreciate the ruling and how we got here. But for the average person and then getting up to Congress, to me, I just wonder if this does finally stimulate like, okay, we probably do need to add a layer here. I think it's tough when the regulator is saying, I have all the tools I need. I don't need anything else. That's a tough place unless Congress wants to inject itself and say, no, there's too much confusion. If the court systems have to keep duking this out, we're going to lead to even more of an uncertain time. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it probably does increase the likelihood of some more momentum behind something to happen in Congress. There are good proposals out there. Lemus Gillibrand was just reintroduced as well in the Senate. I think it's a little early to judge at the moment or offer an opinion. I'm not sure I have one yet on whether it actually is accelerating momentum for something, but I do hope it does. I think you're right. Again, just like the SEC is rolling the dice, staking everything on this litigation strategy, and you just don't know how that's going to turn out. It's great if the courts try to do their best, and they do, to adjudicate and find the true legal center, the zenith of truth to find these out. Who knows if anyone, the industry, the regulators, Americans in general, would like the ultimate framework that emerges from a web of court rulings. People are talking about the major questions doctrine. This is one thing that Coinbase is arguing. Dude, this is a major question, and thus it should be legislated, not litigated. This is not something for the courts. This is something that has to be decided by the people. I think it probably will increase the likelihood that we get something. Again, the Ripple ruling is just such a good example, to your point with Matt Levine's headline. Like, dude, I've been looking at this thing for a full week, and I still can't fully wrap my head around exactly what it means at this point. The tough part about securities regulation that we're already in the weeds anyways, we're all talking about a Supreme Court ruling, the Howey test. We're not talking about a piece of law. To me, property law, securities, it's always been a very tricky place to navigate. There are instruments I traded that were not securities because the industry fought like term debt loans. They just decided they're not. So they went to the SEC and they got an exemption to say, this type of instrument is not a security because we don't want to file this paperwork. So there's all sorts of contradictions. And yet we're pointing to an orange grove case at the Supreme Court, which makes me think I'm idealistic to hope that Congress will pass a law. I have far less probability that will happen and far more likelihood this will end at the Supreme Court and that a conservative courtship is going to rule in a way that is potentially going to change how we think about securities forever. It's not like a big hot take. It's just that when you go down the legislative path and put an industry in an existential position, and end up at the Supreme Court, that's how you get the Howey test. That's how you get people pointing to it forever to say, this is the thing that we're all going to reference for the rest of our lives. And I just wonder if that's not the path, unless something changes that we're headed towards. It feels like we are headed towards that path, absent like comprehensive legislation here. I've studied the Supreme Court enough to try not to prognosticate on where potential cases might land. But this court clearly has a view on balance that regulators are acting with too much authority. 
There was the West Virginia case last year, but West Virginia versus EPA, they basically said, well, it, EPA, like that power wasn't enumerated to you in the legislation, so you don't have it. <laughs> you could totally imagine we also get some other very disruptive Everyone's saying the SEC is guaranteed to appeal this case. I'm not sure that's true because they might say, look, if we appeal and it's the one that goes all the way to the Supreme Court, maybe this aren't the best facts. Maybe we should appeal one that has better facts for us. So, yeah, you just don't know how it turns out. I think that totally could happen, though. Yeah, no, it gets to your point before. You can always win or lose a legal case with the right or the wrong arguments and that. I think the more you hang out with lawyers, the more you realize it's very not black and white, that there's strategy behind all this. There's the right case, the right time with the right lawyers, with the right judge. Don't ever email a lawyer like a one sentence question and expect less than a full page in response. There's so (laughs) much nuance and complexity. You just don't know how it's going to happen, how it's going to turn out. Yeah. Alex, this has been a lot of fun. We end these podcasts with the same question and you can take it a lot of ways because you're building a business at Galaxy. You get to invest and see a lot of businesses. But I'm curious what either you are excited to build or see built over the next six months and what you're excited to see over the next six years. Wow. I'm really excited over the next six months to see what type of new market infrastructure emerges. I think we're going to see new forms of custody. I cover Bitcoin more specifically on my team. Christine Kim, who works with me, is sort of our Ethereum guru. But in both cases, I think improving the quality of custody, and I don't just mean having a better, stronger company do the key holding. I mean, things like covenants and time locks and Bitcoin has a new emerging primitive called Miniscript, which is a higher level programming language that you can do much better and more granular transaction construction with that you can create really interesting new custodial arrangements. So I'm really excited to see stuff like that. I think Ethereum needs a lot of work on this area in particular. It's not necessarily their fault. There's a bunch of other things people like to build on Ethereum. The lack of an EVM on Bitcoin or a virtual machine has left things like transaction construction and physical hardware as the main outlets. Layer two is like lightning for developers to work on. So I think Bitcoin's much more advanced, for example, on self-custody than Ethereum is. I think both could get a lot more advanced and that would be really exciting. There's a lot happening in both worlds that I think will happen in both cases. I hate to say this for six years because it feels pretty trite. People have been saying it forever, but I'm really excited for the UX in crypto to improve. I don't want everyone to only get financial exposure to these assets through an ETF. I'd like people to actually have and use them. They are usable. They're usable today. Unlike what Ben McKenzie says, They're not purely a casino, in my opinion, at least Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular. Like these assets are usable, they're spendable. They operate on networks that only are becoming more robust, mature and more usable. But even today, even for me, I've been using these things for years and like it's still hard to use. If I send a transaction like worth more than a couple hundred dollars, I still stare at it until I see confirmations happen on the network or until I see it like be received in my wallet. I don't know what the answer is. We just need better UX. It goes back to my point about making sure the fundamental values are conveyed. It's going to be very hard if understanding and operating and using the fundamental features of these networks is still relegated to people that really got technology, like still looking for that iPhone moment out of crypto, but I'm certain we'll get it within the next six years. Awesome. Alex, thank you for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, Eric, great. Thanks for having me, man. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 